Hello and welcome to the Gladstone's Land podcast, episode 18, The Georgian House. Uh, hi, um, we are back. We've had a little bit of a hiatus, as you might have noticed, um, and that is for a whole range of reasons that I'll tell you a little bit about, and then we will crack on with the wider episode. But also, how exciting is it that Thomas is back? Um, and that is... Yes, yeah, well. <laughs> And that is because, uh, obviously, we are all in lockdown now, um, so he has a little bit of time on his hands, and we have worked out enough technology to be able to record this from two entirely different places. That's right. Much like, um, I'm sure, in many of your other favourite podcasts, we're recording this remotely, um, And uh, but we thought, apart from anything else, it would be a, a nice thing to do a couple more episodes of the uh, of of the Gladstones Land podcast uh, during this this time because I don't know about you but I've been feeling that uh, a lot of the regular podcasts that I listen to are all about the uh, uh, the the, the you know what uh, <laughs> and and I'm 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 getting a bit bored of listening uh, of, of hearing about it frankly so so here we are uh, hopefully this should be a nice break from hearing about the. The coronavirus, and and instead we can we can talk about our our favourite subject and yours, uh, uh, some Scottish history. <laughs> so, um, uh, so, so Kate, perhaps you'd like to start us off by talking a little bit about what's been going on at Gladstone's Land in the last couple of months. Yes, of course. So um, we put out a couple of episodes, Holly and I, of the the, the podcast, and then we were given at quite short notice. Um, information that uh, the project is going ahead now I'm not sure if this is something we've talked about on the, the podcast um, but essentially uh, it's a big renovation project uh, which has been um, in discussions for quite a significant amount of time for Gladstone's Land it's incredibly exciting um, so it's it's a huge sort of renovation the ground floor is going to become a cafe and ice cream parlor um, we are completely redoing the visitor experience um, so opening up a whole nother floor of that um, all the holiday flats are being um, completely redone so really really exciting um, but it it's sort of been the it, it's it's been happening for a really long time but not actually been given the go-ahead um, and then about the middle of um, December suddenly we were given just the full steam ahead um, so we had to um, clear and decant and pack um, the entire of Gladstone's land and as it turns out there is just a lot of stuff in Gladstone's land um, it took us just getting to the back of the cellar was an adventure um, and it really it took all of our manpower um, all of our energy just for a couple of months to get it done um, Really excitingly, uh, we, we got it done in, at the end of January and um, Anna and I moved over to the Georgian house to continue working on the project and work on the uh, all, all of the changes that are going into the visitor experience. So it's quite a nice link here is that we are talking about the Georgian house today. Um, obviously, with lockdown and um, stops being put to building work and things like that, the project is on hold at the moment um, and we're hoping to find out once everything's calmed down a little bit how that will progress um, but they are very much in process at the moment when everything was stopped um, it's uh, loads of really exciting things happening there and there's some good photos up on twitter if anybody is interested about where we'd got to um, once we're back to normal it would actually be really good to do an episode about the project and just talk about exactly what's going on and what the new completion date will be and things like that that's a 
what exactly what I was just about to say actually <laughs> once uh, once the project once the renovation has been completed it will be really good to do an episode there um, but for now uh, at least um, for the last couple of weeks before uh, you started working from home you had been working from the Georgian house yes indeed so we have talked about we have mentioned the Georgian house once or twice before on this podcast mm-hmm. uh, but uh, for the benefit of those uh, who the, uh, for benefit of anybody who who doesn't remember um, what what is the Georgian house uh, well it's another national trust property it's our sister property uh, in Edinburgh and Basically, um, we show sort of luxury living, 17th century style. Um, We'll be doing a little bit more of that after the renovations. Um, But the Georgian house is luxury living, 18th century style. Um, And it's it's a huge, beautiful um, building on Charlotte Square in Newtown, Edinburgh, that really is sort of the pinnacle of of that high end um, living um, through the end of the the 18th into the Regency period. And it's really quite remarkable in that short space of time uh, that that less than a century during the um the 1700s how dramatically uh, architecture and and living changed mm-hmm. didn't it very much so um, um that you know you you walk up and down say the lawn market where gladstone's land is and it could very much it, it, it's what what most people would imagine if they were to picture a medieval street you know, it's all very cramped and crowded, and and you go around Gladstone's land, and you see, uh, it, it, everyone is surprised that it's such a small space. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, by contrast, you you just walk a few hundred meters uh, north into the new town, and then all of a sudden, you have these great, broad Georgian boulevards with uh, geometric patterns and these enormous buildings and the most uh, and one of the largest and grandest of those buildings is uh, is the north end of Charlotte Square which is where the National Trust has its Georgian house. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah it's uh, and, and it's so nice because you can go and visit it so not only do you get this stunning bit of architecture but you actually get a sense of how people were living and how that changed from from in ter- particularly in terms of space, that's that's one of the things I found in a fantastic statistic, which was in 1830, uh, there were 40,000 people living in Newtown in 5,000 buildings. So that is about eight people per building. But if you think in terms of space, um, something like Gladstone's Land, you may have um, across that property, across sort of five or six floors, um, you might easily have that number of people per floor. Um, and to go to these, these big grand houses where you've got so few people in so much space, that really is the huge change. And I think that brings us quite nicely uh, to segue into, I suppose, talking about the, the, the backstory for, for the new town. Yes. Um, as I think w- what we're going to do in this episode, we, we'll talk about the... Uh, as I said, yes, the, the backstory, the, the reason that the new town was built, and some of the uh, some of the details of that process, and then uh, we're going to do a real deep dive to look at the Georgian house, uh, what goes on there, and Kate's going to talk a little bit about uh, new town living, how mm-hmm. it, how how big the change was, 
uh, and then we've got a couple of other segments later on in the in the episode, which we'll talk to you about then. Um, so the 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 back the background the backstory to the Newtown. I mean, very, very much when I was re- re- thinking about this episode and, and reflecting on our, our our last series, I think the thing that we kept coming back to again and again when we were talking about the old town was the overcrowding, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, that we said that within uh, the, what was quite a small space, actually, of Old Town Edinburgh, there were some was it thirty thousand people living, and a lot of these houses were fourteen stories high, uh, and you had, as, as you were just saying, people living tooth by jowl, rich living alongside the poor, and uh, and in this enormous overcrowded space, uh, and that had all of the effects that you would expect right it was it was it was overcrowded it was noisy it was uncomfortable it was unsanitary uh, and it was dangerous uh, you know there was famously uh, a very rowdy mob in the, that used to gather regularly on on the royal mile and i think the unsanitary point is important too because um we didn't do an episode about this, but halfway through the 17th century, Edinburgh was obviously hit very badly by by a, a terrible so we, plague. We, we actually talked about that quite a lot in the Halloween episode, which was mm. one of the one of the ones we recorded um, in the autumn. Um, so there's a little bit about there that there if anybody wants to go and have a listen. So the the old town was 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 cramped and overcrowded and and pretty nasty. Um, but the reason that people put up with it for so long was that they needed the protection of the city walls mm-hmm. that throughout the Middle Ages and particularly during that 17th century period, uh, people needed to live within the walls because there was always uh, th- there was almost constant warfare in and around Edinburgh. And, you, we, and we also talked about some of the civil wars and English invasions and French invasions and all of these things. And for all of those reasons, up until about 1700, people had no choice but to live within the walls. But in around 1700, around the end of the uh, the 17th century, that quite quickly changed. Uh, for a, 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 And there were a, a few important reasons for that. Um, the... At the end of one of the, the the last episodes, we talked about the Glorious Revolution, as it's known, the sort of 1688-1690, when uh, the last proper Stuart king, James the Seventh, was exiled, and and William the Third became king of of Scotland and and of England, and that really brought to an end this constant cycle of civil wars that that Britain had had dealt with for for almost a century. So so there was the end of of this constant warfare and then the the last uh the last Jacobite rebellion uh, a couple of decades after that meant that there was no longer a need to live behind walls. Uh and the other side of that is the the union of parliaments, right? That um it was around this time also 1707 that Scotland and England became the same country, became Great Britain. And so Edinburgh suddenly went from being a uh, a, a, effectively a border citadel to a a fairly peaceful provincial capital. 
and so there was no longer any need to live within the walls. In addition to that, uh, I'm not a, a huge expert on this sort of thing, but uh, Kate, perhaps you can help us out here, that um, the, the, the beginning of the 18th century suddenly saw people getting richer. Is that right? I... <sighs> So, yeah, there's quite a few things going on. There is sort of post-union, there is a lot of money coming into Scotland. It opens up new trade networks. Um, So there is a burgeoning, um, as a lot of periods of change in history, you get a a rise of the middle classes almost. I mean, you can see this again in the 19th century. So you do get um, wealth being generated. But the other big thing that's going on, I suppose, in a cultural sense is the Enlightenment. Um, And this is such a period of intellectual change. There's all these new ideas coming out. There are, um, and and Edinburgh is a real centre of it. Um, There are so many important thinkers and and sort of movers and shakers, both in the arts and the the science world who are coming out of Edinburgh. Um, It becomes known as the Athens of the North, um, which is, I think, a little bit optimistic in terms of weather. Uh, but um, gives you a sense of, of, of this boiling pot, uh, this melting pot of, um, of change that's going on. And some of the new ideas that come out of that are tied into social concepts as well. So there's a real rise in the importance of conversation um, and fashions change as well. So um, people, people want symmetry, they want rationality, they want... Um, they want to surround themselves in that way. And of course, Old Town conforms to none of those things. It is not mm. fashionable, it's not rational, and it is not symmetrical. Uh, so I think there's quite a lot going on in that respect as well. So in the middle of the 18th century, there were various, for various different reasons, uh, factors all aligned together to mean that the, the citizens of Edinburgh uh, were looking for a way to expand a way to expand the town. And so, so both to uh, escape the higgledy-piggledy, chaotic, uh, dirty, overcrowded old town, but also from a more uh, optimistic point of view to to create a, a city that was befitting the new spirit of the age. Is that a good way of putting yes. it? Yes, you I think, think it you is. You had a, a, a wealthier, uh, more enlightened uh more rationalistic uh, city and so apparently there there were a few attempts to do this within or sort of closer to to home Mm -hmm. there were sort of new newer buildings come up on the on the cannon gate and there were a few things like the uh, the royal exchange which is now the now the city chambers uh, and obviously george square where the university is, that they were there were sort of pockets of uh, of Georgian building at that time, but it still wasn't enough. And so they developed plans for a radical new solution, which was to build a whole new town on the north side of the Norlock, which uh, we have we, have, we definitely, we've definitely talked, about the talked about before. Uh, this was a, 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 a stinky swamp that. Uh, sat on the north side of the um, of Castle Rock and the old town. It's where the railway station now is. And this functioned as the, as the city's sewer. And uh, the idea was to build a new town on the other side of that. So they drained the lock. They well, built they, a... They drained oh. some of it. They didn't actually get around to draining all of it until about 1820. They basically just turned it into a fetid marsh for a while. Um, so, uh, yeah, but it's a little bit better. Okay, it's a little bit better. And they built... <laughs> They built the North Bridge, 
over the lock, didn't they? Uh, which is still there today. And then they drew up uh, plans for a new town uh, on the other side of, of the which lock. Which is obviously still called, which just stuck. Um, it's one of the things that uh, particularly uh, American uh, tourists love to comment on when they come to Edinburgh, that uh, uh, it's it's called the new town, but it's still um, much <laughs> older than many other things. In fact, it's actually the, the, the really odd thing is that it's older than lots of other parts of Edinburgh. You know, like um, a lot of the the area around uh, a lot of the south side, for instance, the area around the university and Newington and Marchmont and so on, where lots of people live, that is older. That is all 19th century. But anyway, we still doggedly call it the new town. The story goes that the city council put out a competition for architects to design this new town. And in 1767, a, a young architect called James Craig drew up a, uh, a submitted a plan for the new town, which was roughly the, 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 the way that we have it today. This mm-hmm. uh, long rectangular grid of wide streets, uh, rational buildings, parks, stately buildings and, and elegant residences. Um, I don't know whether you are able to confirm or deny this part of the story, Kate, but I... I've always stuck to this. Um, when I was in my in my first year at university, a, one of the lecturers told us in a lecture that one original plan for the new town was that it should the streets should form the shape of the Union flag. I... That that it it was supposed to be a symbol of the Union. Uh, and so the streets were given unionist names. So you had George Street, Hanover Street, Princess Street, uh, Jamaica Street, Thistle Street, Rose Street, and so on. And the idea was that they were going to have streets in the shape of the English and Scottish flags or the British flag. And the only reason they didn't do it was that it was too difficult to put buildings on such tight angles. I, I have never heard that. Yet yeah, the names, absolutely. They were all about um, celebrating the Union. And that's why you get these Scottish references like Thistle Street, but you also get all the English ones um, and, and a lot of very sort of royal names. Absolutely. It was all about that. I've never heard the story about the <laughs> the flag. <laughs> Could be true. Uh, 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 I mean, I so, so James Craig did definitely win that competition based on his gridiron design um i i don't know whether there were ever there, mm. w- there was an alternative plan it's uh, it's always i've it, I've, I've stuck to this story i've only ever <laughs> it's heard a good it story <laughs> yes i've only ever heard it once and um i've never been able to find it uh, confirmed anywhere else but anyway that's that there's a couple of interesting points to note about the the plan uh, is that apparently um, there were some changes made to the, the names after the fact. As we have St Andrew's Square on the um, the east end, uh, which has got the big uh, the column in the middle of it. Uh, the the square at the other end was supposed to be called St George's Square. To, so you had the two patron saints, St Andrew and St George. But apparently it was renamed in honour of uh, George III's wife, uh, Queen Charlotte. So it's Charlotte Square. It's, apparently it was too confusing to have the George Square over an old town. Um, oh, is that yeah, it? Yeah, so they, they thought it was going to be too much, which was why it was renamed. 
that makes sense actually uh, the other one that I've heard, this is a little bit funny, is that Princess Street was originally supposed to be called St. Giles Street in honour of the patron saint of Edinburgh, St. Giles. Uh, but apparently St. Giles in London, at least at that time, was a noted red light district. Uh, and, uh, and they thought that George III would find this idea scandalous. I, I've heard a similar story. I, I don't know where I've got it from, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, they um, plans were drawn up for this this um, this new town. And what one really interesting thing about it is that it wasn't all built at once, right? They they laid out the roads, and then gradually buildings were filled in as as people um, bought the individual plots, and so that me- meant that. Different architects were able to to take part in in, in building the the city, and one of those was uh, is his name Robert Adam. Yes. So actually, interestingly, the only because for exactly that reason that people bought land or the builders bought plots of land and then sold the houses on, um, they had to conform to. Craig's plans, they had to build in the right places and there were certain restrictions on how high they could build and and sort of what styles they could use and things. But other than that, there was a lot of personal freedom. The only bit that was designed as a unit was actually Charlotte Square. um, And that was Robert Adams' vision to to create a united um, set of houses, really. Um, And it is still today entirely intact, right? All of the... Whereas in the rest of the new town, particularly along Princess Street... Uh, a lot of the buildings have been replaced mm-hmm. by um, sort of 19th century uh, uh, um, uh, monumental architecture or, or 20th century rubbish. Hideous but, 20th um, century brutalist architecture, yeah. But Charlotte Square still remains. And so, so there I think that's a good uh, point to segue into talking about the, uh, the, the Georgian house. Mm-hmm. So... Um, can you first of all, uh, some many of our listeners will have will have been to Charlotte Square. So can you just situate us, uh, explain where where exactly the Georgian House is uh, on that uh, on that square? So for anyone that has been to the Book Festival, that's probably the the Book Festival occurs in August, obviously, um, and uh, it occurs in the the big sort of square gardens in the middle of Charlotte Square. So as you go into the book festival, it's on the right of the square um, and it's the row of completely sort of unified looking palatial houses um, down the right um, and it's sort of in the middle of there. It's number seven. Uh, And uh, that was, they really are this sort of complete version of Robert Adams' vision. He wanted the whole front to look like, even though they were individual houses, to look like one massive palace along the front. So it's sort of, um, it, it's sort of this unified design. Um, One building that the people might know from that area is um, the the building next to mm-hmm. the National Trust's Georgian House is Butte House, which is also which is, owned by the National Trust. Well, there you go. But it's now famously used as the the official residence uh, for the first minister of Scotland. Um, so she. Uh, she operates in in that we, very grand. We sometimes sometimes see Nicola out of the window from our. Oh really? Yeah, very occasionally. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> um, uh, so there you go. But, but as you say, still owned by the the National Trust. Um, and so tell us um, 
if you wouldn't mind then tell us about firstly living in in a house like that how was it different to living in Gladstone's land well I think as I've already mentioned space is by far the biggest so in in the Georgian house for anybody that's been to visit you there are a lot of rooms um there and there's a lot of rooms you don't see as well so you've got a basement um where you've got kitchens um servants rooms um the butler's pantry, things like that. You've got the ground floor, which has a dining room and a bedroom. And actually having a bedroom on the ground floor was fairly normal in the Georgian period. So it's sort of the master bedroom. Um, up on the first floor, you've got a big entertaining space. You've got a parlour. Um, and then above that, you would have had a couple of floors of bedrooms and nurseries. And So there is a lot of space. Uh, and we know a lot about the first owners, um, which are the the Laments, um, the chief of Clan Lament um, buys it, and he lives there with his wife and five children. Uh, and so you can imagine this is so much more space than people are used to. Uh, so that's probably the biggest. It's it's a lot more elegant um, in terms of perhaps how we see elegance in a contemporary notion, um, and that's because people's ideas of that have changed and fashions have changed but it is everything is much grander ceilings are higher um the the decoration is is much sort of grander and um, a little bit more in your face I suppose um (laughs) there isn't when they first move in um there is only so they put in sewers down the main streets um, but they haven't reached places like Charlotte Square when people first move in. So actually, when it was built, in terms of sanitation, it had neither running water nor flushing toilets um, in its first, so in its late uh, 18th century uh, iteration. Um, but those did come into the, the early 19th century. Um, but it wasn't, wasn't like Old Town in the terms of um, things going out on the street. Um, it was a lot more organised in, in where that went (laughs) Uh, so I suppose I was just struck when you were actually talking about the servants rooms there mm -hmm. what everybody comments on when they visit Gladstone's land is that even though that apartment would have been the house of a well that that we know that was Sir James Crichton wasn't Mm -hmm. it who was a uh, a member of the gentry he still basically lived in two rooms and his servant uh, had the kitchen right next to his bedroom uh, bedroom come dining room and the servant would have slept in the kitchen so now not only does the master live in a dozen grand rooms but the servant actually has a lot more space as well yeah it's uh, it's this is really where you start to get the separation of um of servants mm. and masters um and servants become relegated to the attics and the basements um, and this is i think lots of people have this i guess it's sort of um gossard park downton abbey idea of upstairs downstairs and this is the period that it, it starts to emerge that's when that separation happens um, but yes there is more space um, and you would probably have well you would need more servants to run a house of this size because it, it's mm. so much bigger um and Obviously, the bigger it is, it allows you to entertain more people. It allows more people to be in those spaces. And so um, you you need more people to organise all of that. You've been talking quite a lot about entertainment. And you mentioned earlier conversation and things like that. These may sound today like things that you would obviously expect wealthy people to do. But... Could you talk a little bit about that and explain what you mean in the the rise of entertaining and conversation? I I mean, it's not, entertaining isn't new. 
at all. Uh, obviously, people have always entertained their friends. They've always had people over. There's always been rowdy dinners. Uh, but the ideas and I guess almost the ceremony associated with it develops in this period. So in terms of conversation, um, obviously, it's always happened. But there are new almost rules come into play and new emphasis on the importance of stimulating intellectual conversation and that's all tied up with the the enlightenment as well uh, and people start hosting things like conversation salons um, and it becomes associated with um, also early moves for women's education and things like that so the blue stockings are really into that sort of stuff um, but you do get a lot of well-known female hostesses particularly um, who are ho- who are hosting these salons where people come to have um, interesting engaging conversation with each other so you do get that um, in terms of um, dances uh, in people's houses um, obviously you need the space to do that and again this isn't a new idea um, people with big country estates would have had grander bigger events in them but to be able to do that in Edinburgh is new um, mm. and so you find people entertaining a lot more in their own homes because they have the space to do it. Um, and certainly the, the drawing room in the Georgian house is big enough to have a small dance in. Uh, so you you have those opportunities um, for people to interact in their own space and also to flaunt, flaunt your wealth, to show off uh, how well you're doing and how nice your house is and how good your interior decoration is and how, how pretty your daughters are by hosting um, these events. Um, and also, hopefully, you know, marry off your daughters in the process. And I suppose to sort of dances and things like that, this is the sort of time where you would get, uh, I'm sort of picturing a, a Jane Austen adaptation or Absolutely. something. You, know, you would have a you'd have a string quartet round and they would sit in the corner and, and eight or ten couples would dance and everyone else would sit round and watch. And yep. you'd have your servants wandering around with claret and so on um absolutely and you would you might not feed the entire party you might feed some of the party but you would feed some of them as part of this um you would uh, yeah it would, it would be a, a big opportunity to to have a lot of people in your house and that's exactly the sort of thing we're talking this is sort of the heyday regency period in the uh, the old town we were primarily talking about merchants living in Edinburgh, right? You had tradesmen and merchants and a few professionals like doctors and so on. And the, the aristocracy and the gentry would have lived out in their in the country and then might have taken rooms in Edinburgh for for a certain period, like James Crichton did. Mm-hmm. Do you still see that happening or would you have major magnates and landowners now having their main house in town so it's a bit of both you get the people with a lot of money there's a lot of concern post french revolution that um people who have typically just made their money by being members of the aristocracy from land rents or um, actually need to develop a profession because they are concerned if that sort of social ferment happens in the uk that um they will need to have something um, to fall back on um, and so you find a lot of those people entering some sort of high-end trade whether that be as a lawyer or, or a doctor um, or, or some sort of sort of organizational logistical governmental roles uh, so you do get those needing space in town um, and you also get people who have made their money 
at the top end of their trade. So you get wealthy doctors, you get um, people who have um, made their money in, in very much high-end goods who are buying these new town properties. So it is a mixture of the upper middle classes and the gentry. Um, and what about public spaces? Uh, we're not sure that Edinburgh had a season like London, but were there places that, uh, as well as people going to dances and things in private houses, were there public spaces that were, were built? Absolutely. So we have the assembly rooms built in towards the end of the 18th century, where you could have much bigger balls um, and much bigger gatherings, and they had uh, weekly get-togethers but it was also used for other things like public lectures as well Um, and then we have the playhouse built which was down opposite where the registry office is now um, as you come across Northbridge Um, and they had Sarah Siddons there um, in the sort of the the latter end of the 18th century Um, very well-known actress for anyone that hasn't sort of very famous for doing tragedies Um, and she often played men's roles as well absolutely fascinating woman Uh, but she uh, packed out the playhouse um, towards the end of the 18th century. Uh, it's, it's fascinating how how different, uh, you, you know, building a new town like that could make, what a difference it could make to the way people live their, their mm-hmm. lives. Um, one question I was going to ask was, what about the poor? Um, we did talk a little bit about the servants, but could you um, talk a little bit maybe about uh, what the new town meant both to the life of of poorer people, but also now the relationship between rich and poor. So there's a really interesting period of flux. So from the end of the 18th century, you get a lot of these wealthy people moving over to the new hat town. Um, And really by sort of about 1820, 1830, that's when we've got so much going on over there. But during that period, you also get the transfer of a lot of businesses. Um, So when people first move over to the new town, they're still commuting back to old town to uh, to go to their gentlemen's clubs, which are still in the old town, to go to to go to places of work, and gradually a lot of those, um, particularly things like the banks, move over to the new town. So people then go to their work in the new town and don't go back to the old town at all. Uh, and so by the sort of the mid nineteenth century, the old town has started to decline. Um, and it started to decline fairly rapidly. Um, and a lot of areas that have once been very mixed in terms of class um, go downhill. Uh, so up on Lawn Market, it stays a little bit more respectable. Um, and it's not really until the early 20th century that somewhere like Gladstone's Land declines a great deal. I mean, some of it becomes uninhabitable in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. But places like Grass Market um, begin to get a reputation for being really very poverty stricken. Um, And of course, because you've got a lot of these houses that are not being kept up, um, that are not being looked after and because the rich are no longer there to advocate for things to improve, um, poorer people don't have the same voice. And so um, actually things like disease become even more rife because mm. people are malnourished, the services aren't there anymore um, in what did exist, and um, there are real problems with slum dwellings. So you do, you do get a real decline throughout the 19th century. So um, although the new town was, was good for the people that got to live that there... That had the money um, to go there. Um, yeah, and of course, it, yeah. It, it was the the cause of a not a brain drain but a uh, a, a wealth drain yeah. from the the traditional old town 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and that mm. caused all sorts of social problems in its own right. And, and it's not really until the end of the 19th century that people start to pick up on that and, and try to do something about it. And you do get a number of sort of health practitioners who start writing books about what a state it's in, people who do start to make some improvements and people like Geddes, who, um, Patrick Geddes, who advocates for saving some of the old buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it doesn't really start to improve or people don't even really start to talk about what a problem it is until later there you go um i suppose just to 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 wind up this this fascinating discussion about georgian living um could you maybe paint a picture of uh, in in a few minutes, uh, the the day in the life oh, of gosh. Uh, of maybe the you know your 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 average day for um for the, the one Lamins, of the residents maybe uh, yeah. yeah yeah why not what would you know she would she would um, say um did you were they the, the the Lord Lord and Lady Lament was that it uh, so no he is the chief of Clan Lament right uh, so Mrs uh, Mrs Lament she wakes up in her her beautiful Georgian uh, uh, bedroom. And then what? What what do they do? Well, I mean, day? obviously, you you get up, you you have a wash, you have some, uh, and and I think we have this this idea of the past that people didn't wash. They just don't wash in the same way that we wash. Um, but people are all like washing your hands and face is is something that people do. Uh, and um, so she gets up, she she'd probably have a wash, um, get dressed with the assistant of um, a maid. Um, breakfast would be in the dining room um, and or potentially she might take that in her own room Um, and you know that might be porridge with cream Um, you might have smoked fish there there would be lots of 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 choice Um, because again this is this is the the life of leisure I suppose and this is also a period where um, women because you get the rise of the servants and this distinction between upstairs and downstairs, women actually let go a lot of the reins of organising the house. They're still involved in things like menu planning and liaising with the servants, um, but that their actual involvement does, in the practical sort of daily life of these houses, does decline over this period. And then you see that moving into the Victorian period where women are really only supposed to be decorative. Uh, and oh, this is, I mean... This is upper middle class women. Um, this is not, you know, working women at all. It's very, very different for them. Uh, so she would spend her days in leisure to a greater extent. She might have some liaison over a, a dinner party or a, a, where she would go and meet the cook or the housekeeper. But um, she is, she might meet with friends. She might take tea. We've done a whole episode on tea. Tea becomes incredibly popular at this period. Um, that might happen in the afternoon. Um, she might do some sewing. She um, embroidery. These sort of hobbies become popular. Quilling, um, shell work. I think comes in. I'd have to go check that. But those sort of decorative hobbies um, come in at this period. So she would spend her life in moneyed leisure. Um, she might go out to events, um, she might uh, attend friends' houses, they might come to her. So it, it's really sort of operating around her social sphere. It's very interesting. I hadn't thought about that, the fact that more servants mean you, if you're the, the, the landlord or the landlady, the owner, the, the rich person has suddenly less to do. So that's 
you know, they, they, they weren't so, because they had more servants, they weren't so involved in the management of the house. So then they had more time and therefore they, they had leisure, these leisure pursuits. It's really interesting because actually I think we forget that even sort of quite well off 17th century women had a huge amount of agency um, and actually their involvement, whilst it might not have net, I say not in the world of work, there's a lot of women, particularly widows, who are heavily embroiled in the brewing trade, who run their own taverns, who um, women are actually very engaged in society um, and in terms of work. And it might be different from men's in some cases, but it is, they're they're very present. And then that gradually changes into the 19th century. Um, Mm. And they're still that it's much more I guess it's a move back into the home to some extent and and some of that agency changes no that's really fascinating I I always love these um ep- doing these episodes because I always learn something <laughs> new uh, and particularly the, the 18th century is a Georgian period is not a period I know about at all so this has been great I mean I've, over, I've learned everything in the last year and a half or so this is uh, it was all new to 17th and 18th century was all new to me when I started at Gladstone's land I'm very much a modern historian so well now we are going to uh, now we're going to move on to a, a new uh, a new segment at last series as you may remember we we tried a uh, uh, we tried a segment about the dinner party, inviting mm-hmm. people, having guests invite people to our, our historical dinner party. We, and that, that segment met with only limited success. Um, <laughs> I mean, so, it was quite interesting, but yes, I think we're going to change it up a little bit. What we're going to do this, uh, this sort of mini series is, is do a segment called The Women of Scotland. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to, each week or each uh, episode, we're going to look at uh, the... Uh, in, in, we're going to have a quick look at a different uh, women, prominent or otherwise, in Scottish history. Uh, and we're going to we, try we're... and take them from a range of periods. So we're going to give you a good old mix of, and some of them I'm sure you'll have heard of, and some of them maybe not. And uh, yes, yeah, so that will be the idea, I think, to come up with. It's not quite a, a full-on forgotten women section, but um, you find that it obviously goes without saying that um, so much of of history is, uh, at least when we're talking about uh, history of of events, you know, political history. So much of it is 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 talking exclusively about almost or almost exclusively about male figures. So it, it's really, but it's really interesting to uh, and important to find out uh, and learn about women's history as well. So that's what we're going to do. And and this week we're going to start with. Muriel Thompson. Yes. So, Kate, so, uh, who was Muriel Thompson? <laughs> this is uh, one of my favourite subjects, is Muriel Thompson. She's absolutely brilliant. Uh, she was the first, so she was one of the first women, well, she was the first woman in the UK to win a motor race. Um, and that was in 1908 uh, at Brooklyn Circus. She was born in Scotland to a, a pretty wealthy family. Her father owned a shipping line um, and she had quite a lot of um, siblings, both actual siblings and half siblings. And she grew up here. Um, Goes down to Brooklands um, with a couple of her brothers, uh, one of whom teaches her to drive, uh, which was really unusual for a woman in 1908. Um, And she wins the first women's race um, in her brother's car, which is called Pobble, which is amazing. Uh, And widely celebrated she she makes the front of like the the london illustrated news for doing so it's a lot of fuss about 
and excitement actually about women driving and about this race. She then goes on to become a, she's a suffragist. She goes on to become the first driver for the WSPU and she drives the Pankhursts around. Um, oh, so she's a suffragette. She's a suffragist. So but this she was, drives the Pankhursts. But she drives the Pankhursts. Um, yeah, she's not into the militant action. The Pankhursts then go on to that. Uh, but Muriel is a suffragist. Um, and then she she does a bit more driving. There's a few years where she 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 you know she she does a lot of interesting things. But for the sake of this story, we'll jump to 1915. Uh, now, First World War has broken out, and um, there are a lot of very interesting, dedicated, forward-thinking women who want to be involved and to want to do their bit. And amongst those are a group called it's a really unfortunate acronym, the Fannies. Um, which stands for First Aid Nursing Yeomanry. Uh, Now, they had been founded a few years previously, um, but they had really been reinvigorated by a couple of of women. Um, Lillian Franklin, who is just known as Boss through all um, all of the literature that you see about them, and a woman called Grace Ashley Smith, who later becomes Grace McDougall. Um, she is also a, a wonderful Scotswoman, and there's loads of information about her out there. Um, and she is actually the first woman to get married in khaki in uniform. Um, oh, and that's, she actually gets married in like the second year of the First World War. Uh, but anyway, back to Muriel. So um, the Fannies were originally put together to, to ride horses and to pick up wounded men off the battlefield. But of course, technology has changed. Um, and they see that the most appropriate use for their skills is to to run hospitals and to drive ambulances. And they go to the British government and the British government are like, you're women, why would we want your help? We don't need you. Um, So they go and work for the Belgians and the French. And um, they, but they need women who can not only drive, but look after cars. And that still in 1914, 1915 is in short order. And so Muriel Thompson gets approached to go out and join the Fannies in 1915. And she agrees. She's like, you know what? Yes. Um, and she goes out and she actually becomes, she rises up through the ranks of the Fannies. She teaches a lot of women to drive. Um, and the Fannies actually, they, they become these real jacks of all trades because they will go anywhere and they will do anything. And they have that real sort of spirit that you associate with determined women at this period where they just get on with it. Um, and in 1916, they're allowed to drive for the British for the first time. There's then some weird politicking that goes on um, with the British Red Cross, who run um, the voluntary aid detachment, who provide a lot of nurses, voluntary nurses and things like that, who try to take them over and the, and the fannies repel it. Uh, but they're never actually part of any army until much later. They, they exist as this independent body, which also gives them a huge amount of freedom mm. to get on with things. Um, and that's why you get things like the British Red Cross trying to take them over. But no, they stay independent. They, they fight them off. Um, and they, they expand the number of ambulance convoys they're running and, um, and, and what they're doing. Uh, and in 1918, Muriel is given her own command and she is sent out to St. Omar um, to run a joint VAD um, Fanny convoy um, driving ambulances. And initially their job is to transfer patients. So um, the ambulance trains come from the front um, the tats and they uh, patients come off them in a, in a terrible state they go on to the casualty clearing stations um, and 
they are dressed, they're, they're looked after, and then they go back on a train to take them back to England to recuperate. Um, and their main job at this point is to, to meet the trains and, and to sort of transfer people between these, these various places. Um, but then, of course, the spring offensive happens and the fighting gets incredibly close to St. Omar. And actually, the Fannies find themselves in the midst of fighting coming their way. And they're told to evacuate and they refuse. <laughs> Um, and they, they stay on during this and they end up dealing with direct hits in ammunition dumps, in towns nearby, on camps. Um, and they the reason we know so much about this, I should add, is because Muriel kept a diary all through this. Mm. Um, and it is from from her accounts. She is brutally honest. She's quite funny in places. She has a real thing for Australian soldiers. Um Apparently, apparently they just look very good in their uniform. Um, but she, she records the absolute horrors of what they're dealing with. Um, and there's one particular night where they're sent out um, in really heavy shelling to pick up casualties. And they're told to take cover and they refuse and they continue to work. Um, and um, they're, they're awarded all sorts of medals because of it. And they actually become one of the most decorated units in the First World War because of it. And because of just their sheer bravery in this situation. Um, so... Yeah, that sort of sees Muriel through war service. She then later becomes a member post-First World War of the fledgling women's RAF and becomes a recruiter mm. for them. Um, and she, she dies in 1944. Um, so, yeah, absolutely incredible woman um, in, the, in the thick of it right the way through. Um, and, wow. But a huge amount of respect for the Fannies as well, and particularly for, you know, Lillian Franklin and, and Grace McDougall as well, who, who were these huge movers and shakers in that, in that group. That is a great story. I, 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 well, I hadn't heard of Muriel Thompson, but I'd never heard of the Fannies. That's brilliant. So the Fannies still exist Always. today. Um, oh, yeah, they uh, they're London based, um, and they they do a lot of emergency re- volunteer emergency response. Um, so they did, as I mentioned, the British Red Cross tried to absorb them during the First World War and they fought it off. They did have that problem during the Second World War um, and they were sort of absorbed into the women's um, auxiliary, oh gosh, is it mm. transport unit? Um, anyway, uh, they they then sort of restate their independence later. Um, but yeah, they still, they're involved in, um, they do things like man phone lines and um, in the aftermath of emergencies. Gosh, well, there you go. Um a fascinating story, Muriel Thompson and the, the first instalment of our regular series, The Women of Scotland. Uh, so, so thank you very much for that story. And I should say, if any listeners have any requests for people they would like us to talk about in this section, then do get in touch because we'd, uh, we'd like to hear new ideas from you as well. That almost brings us to the end of this episode of the Gladstone's Land podcast. The last thing we're just going to, be to- going to talk about before we, we wind up is, is another new segment, um, something we heard a, a bit of in uh, our feedback or, or, or emails from, from listeners last season was people wanted to hear about, they wanted to have some book recommendations because we know lots of our listeners are, are obviously uh, interested in in history and and readers and that sort of thing and uh, as are we and so people were writing in to ask for the sorts of books that we liked to to read uh, and anything that we read to inform the podcast so one thing that we thought we could do uh, each episode is a what are you reading this week section Um, so 
in a few words, Kate, what are you reading this week? Uh, so I'm about the third of a way through a, um, a book that's just come out in the last month or two um, called A Curious History of Sex um, by Kate Lister. Uh, now, if anybody's not come across Kate Lister, she runs a Twitter account called Whores of Yore, which I thoroughly recommend. Um, and it is, it's a series of short essays. Um, some of it's linguistic. She looks at how words emerged um, to do with sex. Um, but she also looks at specific uh, sort of elements of uh, the sexual experience. Uh, absolutely fascinating stuff. Um, and I'm reading this because we are putting together a tour for Gladstone's Land when it reopens, which is going to look at the history of sex um, and I think that's maybe a topic for another episode um, but uh, yeah I've, I've only only part way through but um, what I've read so yeah. far is great and really that interesting. sounds good what's it called Kate Lister and uh, the Kate Lister the title is... A Curious History of Sex there you go uh, I am reading something uh, uh, not, not 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 entirely dissimilar uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, no um, I've, I've actually just finished a book uh, was recommended to me uh Called, uh, a, a Robert Harris book called Selling Hitler, uh, the a, a, a sort of a journalistic history account of an event in or a, a series of events at the end of the 1970s, beginning of the 1980s, where someone working for a West German magazine called Stern or Stern um, claimed to have discovered Hitler's diary, uh, which. Uh, had Hitler had apparently written uh, in secret uh, throughout the 1930s and 40s, and this uh, this diary was believed to be authentic and was authenticated by handwriting experts and uh, by the a few historians that looked at it and uh, and Stern and and various other quite high profile media companies were about to were, to, were going to go and publish it. Apparently Rupert Murdoch had paid millions of pounds for the exclusive rights to broadcast uh, and, 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 and serialise and publish the Hitler diaries. And then, of course, they were discovered to be a, a forgery that it was all it was all made up it had been made up by some uh, sort of professional con man living in stuttgart who had just written the thing uh, in his shed and uh, apparently he, he he the reason he got away with it for so long is he was a very good forger of of handwriting and so he studied he studied hitler's signature and his his what handwriting there was from him and so he was able to produce this uh, this this manuscript um and he apparently wrote it in such an old-fashioned German script that most of the journalists in the 80s could not read it. So nobody noticed that it was that what he had written was absolute drivel. <laughs> uh, that he'd basically just copied out um, headlines from uh, from the Nazi Party yearbook each year, and he'd written a few details and mushy stuff about Eva Brown. Um, but so anyway, this is this is the book that I've been reading, and it's a uh, a jolly good read. I think both for people who are interested in 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 Hitler and World War Two and the Nazis and so on, and then actually just from the point of view of being quite a gripping thriller, uh, it was a rather good story. So there you go. From from my recommendation this week, Robert Harris selling Hitler. Uh, so there you go. We'll post a link to both of those in the comments. Um, but that's that's all we. That's all we've got time for today. 
we are planning to do a few more episodes like this during this this period. Yes. Um, so I um, there is there is a chance that I will be going on furlough, um, but um, Thomas and I are going to try and get a couple more of these recorded. So even if I am on furlough, um, we'll still be able to put out the episodes. Um, but that does make contacting us potentially. A little bit tricky. Um, you can absolutely still tweet us um, at Gladstone's Land, um, and we'll be able to see that. Um, if you do want to email us, um, which is gladstonesland at nts.org.uk, um, at the moment that's fine, um, but there is a chance that those won't be picked up until um, we're back from. I'm back from furlough. Um, it mm-hmm. just depends on what happens over the next week or so. Um, you, but you, you can, can also. You can also uh, email me directly. I'm, I'm very happy for you to email my, my own email address, uh, which is thomashenryware at hotmail.com. I'll put that in the comments as well. Uh, and of course, as, as Kate said, you can tweet Gladstone's Land uh, and uh, we should be able to see those as well. As always, we really love to hear from you. Um, any comments, questions, requests that you have for the podcast, the more the, more, the better. Um, also, now other... we've worked out how to do this, we can keep doing this, hopefully post-lockdown, if we have yeah. time, we can see. We can see. Um, uh, other notices, I also have a new podcast out. Uh, it's called Saintly Progress, which is a podcast about the history of Christianity, looking at the lives of uh, notable figures in Christian history. So if you are interested in that and you want to hear even more of my uh, <laughs> uh, uh, uh my stuttery voice then look out for saintly progress on uh, which is also on apple podcasts and wherever else that you get this one um i think that's all i have to say kate have you got anything else to say no i have nothing further to add well then uh we'll we'll uh, sign off here but um uh, so from me thomas and me kate thanks very much and we'll see you next time see you next time You've been listening to the Gladstone's Land podcast with me, Thomas Ware, and my co-host, Kate Stevenson. It was produced by us with support from the National Trust for Scotland. We had no guests this week. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Gladstone's Land on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and online at www.nts.org.uk slash gladstones hyphen lamb. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.